0: That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? Ah, what's the big idea? What's the idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. This is Andrew Horn, and my guest today is Rich Litvin. So Rich is one of the most high-powered executive coaches on the planet. Um, I first learned about him through one of his books called The Prosperous Coach, which really transformed my whole approach to men's work, personal coaching, um, and really like what that art is. Um, and one of the things that Rich always says, if you hear this and you say, well, I'm not a coach or interested in coaching, and he just says that the skill of coaching is really just leadership. It's, it's helping people to understand what they want, identifying the things that are getting in the way, and giving them the tools and the confidence to go for it. And Rich has such a beautiful approach to business coaching and really helping people to achieve success and understanding that it is truly not a destination, that it is this lifelong journey, and helping people to create the types of lives that they really enjoy living is what he cares about. And he is excellent at doing that. He does that for unicorn, startup founders, Olympic athletes, you name it. Um, and the big idea that we are here to talk about today um, is some of the pain, loneliness, and emptiness that happens when you start to achieve success. And what rich so masterfully does is he navigates us through all of these traps, some of those that we just talked about the, imposter syndrome that can happen when you start to find yourself climbing the corporate ladder, starting the business, finding financial success, the emptiness that can happen when you get so caught up in pure achievement or monetary wealth. Um, Some of the loneliness that can happen as you start to evolve rapidly, or if you just find yourself at the top with a lot of uh, employees or colleagues that can't really speak their truth to you or challenge you because you're in a, a place of authority. So he, uh, he takes us on a real journey through, through each of these traps uh, throughout the podcast, and he starts by introducing us to his uh, specific kind of modus operandi of coaching and, and how he approaches uh, the practice, uh, the biggest lessons that he has learned along the way, And we close out on a really beautiful note of really applying some of these lessons to his own life, to evaluate what he has done, what he's most proud of. And again, I can't emphasize it enough that whether you are a coach yourself, you're interested in this industry, or you're just interested in leading people, uh, the things we talk about today are incredibly relatable. And, uh, very practical and things that you're going to be able to, uh, to use while you are listening to the podcast and certainly while you're done with it. So I am so excited for you to listen to this show with Rich Litvin. All right. Welcome back to what's the big idea. I'm here with Rich Litvin. Rich, welcome to the show.
1: Hey Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: How are we doing? I'm
1: good. I'm ready for this. I love the idea of having a big idea. So let's talk
0: Beautiful, man. And so you were telling me before we got onto the show that you are currently near Santa Monica and unfortunately you guys are on fire evacuation alert. So hopefully uh, you guys make it out okay. We had some friends that were, were there for, I forget the names of the fires last year, but definitely a hairy situation, but uh, sending some, some good vibes to you guys over there and hoping everything turns out okay. Thank you. Yeah, I will take that. Absolutely. Well, so as I mentioned in our intro, you know, you've already had a powerful impact on my business, my career with one of your first books, and you have an amazing new book coming out. One of the things that we love doing on what's the big idea is really not wasting time is kind of getting uh, right into it. And so before we start talking about this incredible new book that you have coming out, uh, what I'd love to ask is, how do you answer the question? What do you do when people Mm -hmm. ask?
1: I will answer it this way. What I do is what I believe. And what I believe is that we live in a world where, for most people, success is the end destination that they hope one day to finally get there. My experience, because I'm a coach who's worked with extremely successful people in all sorts of fields, is that success has another side to it. It has a dark side and it has all sorts of challenges wrapped up. And it doesn't have to be an end point, it can be the beginning point for
0: what's coming beyond that. And so, Rich, you just identified as a coach, and it seems like there's a a lot of people who are adopting this moniker today. And so I'm curious, to you, uh, what does it mean to be a coach?
1: Well, for most of human history, it wasn't called coaching. It was called leadership. And great leaders know when to motivate their people, when to challenge their people, when to set audacious goals, when to be there by someone's side, nurturing them, when to be out ahead and leading And and that's what coaching is to me. Coaching is an ability to be there for someone, with someone, to listen to them when need be, to listen deeply and and be in silence with them. And at the same time, to be willing to challenge them and and be a leader. Uh, It's a leadership skill. Great leaders have always understood how to be great coaches, Andrew.
0: Beautiful. And so if you look back at your life, what was the moment when you realized that you were a coach or that was something that you really wanted to commit your life to?
1: Interesting. Um, I was involved in education for the first half of my career, almost 15 years as a high school teacher, then a vice principal helped to set up an international school overseas. I worked in Southern Africa. I worked in Southeast Asia and inner city London, and I was trained in coaching skills in about 2003. took a risk, went to a, a, a worked for a very inspiring ju- boss and, and lost that job when he got fired by someone at a government level and the new boss wanted her own team. And so in 2005, I went off to Thailand to lick my wounds. I went to sit on a beach for a while. Hmm. And while I was there, I just started coaching people. It turns out if you're on a beach, you kind of want to reflect on life and, and it's handy if there's a coach nearby. And and I had this insight that I wanted to make this my career and, and my life. I don't quite know why, but I do remember being devastated at losing my job. And I, I remember sitting on a beach coaching someone and she said, you just changed my life. And I was still caught up in this idea that I no longer had a title. Who was I? Uh, I, I had nothing to be proud of. And she looked me in the eyes and said, with the questions
0: you've been asking me, you have changed my life. And I knew there was something powerful in this thing called coaching. Beautiful. And so my next question as a follow-up to that would be, what was the moment? So if you had this moment where you got to experience what it was like to transform this woman's life, You got to feel lit up through that experience. But when did things shift when you realized that you were really good at this? Like, when did you have that moment of like understanding that this is my art, my practice, something that I can be really good at? And like, as we've already talked about uh, in the intro, you know, you've coached some pretty incredible people, leaders of companies, of state, Olympic athletes, you name it. So what was the moment that you realized you were really good at this and what happened?
1: I wrote an article a couple of years ago called how to be an overnight success as a coach in 46 years. (laughs) So I've, I've never stopped learning. I'm always learning. I'm always in this article. I wrote about the coaches I'd had, the workshops I'd done, the trainings I'd done, the books I'd read. And then when people read the article, they gave me all this acknowledgement. Wow, rich. I didn't know you'd done all this work. And that was when I realized, well, hang on a second. There's a ton of stuff I've realized that I've forgotten to put in the article. And what I deliberately left out of the article is every workshop that I, I quit, any course that I didn't finish, any coach that I fired. So I have done so much and I don't stop. I'm always learning, always growing. Uh, it's just how I'm wired. I, I, I can't stop. So I think that's part of what it takes to be able to be coaching other people is that you don't stop learning yourself
0: was there ever a specific modality or approach to coaching that connected to you in terms of like a foundation for how you approach the practice? Or is it really this kind of amalgamation of of all these things that you're constantly learning?
1: Uh, Both. Uh, The heart of it is in in, in this little story, I was with my wife's 96-year-old grandmother. And I asked her, what advice would you give for youngsters today? And she didn't hesitate. She said, I would tell them that the word listen has exactly the same letters as the word silent. Hmm. And I had to do that in my head to just check it was correct. And I realized, wow, she's so right. And that, I think, is the heart of the most powerful skill in coaching is an ability to listen deeply to people. And most people have never had an experience of being deeply heard. And
0: When you can just be with someone and listen to them, their lives will change. Well, I would love that. And so if you were, I actually wrote about this today just by chance. And I talked about an experience in in one of my first uh, exposures to gestalt communication practice. And it was this process of speaking, expressing myself transparently in the moment and feeling this entire room that was there to understand me at the deepest level. And that feeling of being received and supported by a collection of individuals, like really did just shift what I thought was possible relationally. And it made me want to create spaces like that for others. And so for people who are listening, whether you're a coach, whether you're in business, whether you're in sports teams, what advice would you give to help people listen more effectively? Mm -hmm.
1: Most of the time, we're not really listening when we're in conversation. We're just prepared when the other person is talking. We are preparing what we're going to say next. So we're never really, truly listening to somebody. Um, If you want to try this out right now, this is the weird way to listen better. And what you do is you poke your tongue out of your mouth and then you put your finger and thumb and hold your tongue just outside of your mouth. It will Uh, feel and look really weird if you're doing it with me, yep. Um, (laughs) But what happens as you hold that for a moment longer is that your mind begins to slow down because constantly while you're, listening, you're making little micro movements with your tongue as you're thinking, and that can't happen when you hold your tongue. Now, it might not be socially appropriate to do that. So you don't have to, here's the other way to do it. You can let go of your finger and thumb and and let go of your tongue and just press your tongue against the roof of your mouth gently. And then when someone's talking, as you press your tongue against the roof of your mouth, you get to listen to them a bit more deeply. And if you're with them, I'd recommend looking a bit more deeply into their eyes. So not, not in a weird way, but if you need to, perhaps look at the color of their eye, it will help you to be more present. And those two little activities
0: will allow you to be able to really, truly listen. Beautiful. I love that. And, uh, you know, I've been sitting with this, this book and excited to dive in. And so I'm excited to chat a little more deeply here about your big idea and the focus of this new book when success hurts. And so if you were to articulate what the, the purpose of this book is and what you wish people could really take away from it, what is that big idea that you're excited to to dive deeper into today?
1: You know, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend trains, Mountain climbers. And what they do for their final assessment, they climb to the top of this peak and they get to the top of the peak and they realize as they reach it that it's not actually the peak. There's another one behind it. And he watches their faces. And the ones whose eyes light up are the ones he wants to keep working with. And the others who are like, oh my God, another one to go are the ones who are not really his people. And, and that, for me, speaks to success. I, I'm fascinated by people who want to keep playing a bigger game. And success can be challenging and painful in all sorts of ways that most people don't see on their way up. That interests me too, to, to work and coach and challenge the thinking
0: of people who've already had a lot of success. Beautiful and so, what was the moment when you realized that this was going to become the focus of your your next book or something that really, you know, deserved an entire entire body work like this? Uh,
1: well, uh, truthfully, I've been writing this book for over three years. It's brought up all of my uh, discomfort and and challenges and fears about putting this out into the world. So I, this has been a work in progress. It began. With an article I wrote years ago about the guilty secrets of extraordinary top performers. And that morphed into beyond that, what happens on the other side of success.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I love that I've seen you talk about is your approach to coaching some of the most brilliant people on the planet and how you do that. Because I think a lot of people have uh, a fear of working with people who are at the top of their game because they think that they have to match them. And their brilliance in that specific arena. And so how do you approach that as a coach that allows you to enter into a space where you may be a complete novice and working with the genius and still come in from a place of being able to provide value and insight that is, that is worthwhile to them?
1: Nice. Well, I know that I don't need to provide insight. I create the space for their insight. I, I, I'm privileged to work with some of the most extraordinary people on the planet, from former Navy SEALs to high-level CEOs, uh, people in Hollywood, celebrities, you name it. I've worked with extraordinary people. But they're at the top of their field. So I don't have to be, and I couldn't be better at what they do than they are. I don't need to be. What I need to be really good at is listening to them deeply, and then instead of answering the questions that they have for me, challenging the questions that they have for me because if they had the right question they'd have the answer by now they're at the top of their field what i try and do is give them a more powerful question to live into uh, i i like a um, there's a quote from albert einstein who said that there are five ascending levels of intellect they smart intelligent brilliant genius and
0: simple mm. and that's what interests me the simplicity on the other side of genius And what's the essence of finding that right question? You know, you've talked about listening, but as someone who's obsessed with questions and, you know, uses them in every context from the professional to the personal, I'm just curious if you have an art or process to coming up with those questions in the moment or what's guiding, you know, the, the thing in you that's, that's really coming up with those questions.
1: So I have a premise that I walk into a room with when I'm working with an extraordinary top performer. And and it's that if they had the right question, they'd have the right answer right now. I don't have to be clever in coming up with the question. I'm going to provoke them. I'm going to lead. I'm going to challenge. I'm going to play with their thinking. I'm going to be willing to ask the dumb and obvious questions that no one else would ask. I'm going to be willing to... to, I'm to I'm going to be brave enough to say the kind of things that most people wouldn't say. One of the problems with success is you get surrounded by yes people. And, and to be the person who's willing to challenge the thinking of my clients is something I've found that they crave. So I can't tell you a magic answer for how to get to that question. It's in that willingness to lead at times, to follow others, to provoke at times, to challenge, and, and to really mess with the thinking that that's got them to where they are. What's got them here where they are today is not going to get them where they want to go tomorrow. So I'm going to play with them.
0: Yeah, I remember when I read that in The Prosperous Coach and the idea of you are there to say the thing, ask the question that you're afraid to ask or that other people aren't asking. Because again, it's whenever I'm with the client now, uh, if I feel any sort of tension or discomfort In a potential direction, the conversation is going. I almost know that I have to go there. That's my goal is to address that thing. Because if I'm feeling that way or potentially seeing something that could be damaging or harmful to the business, to them, that it may be the thing that people, other people, employees are also scared to ask them about. And so when you're in this type of container where, you know, this is why they're with you is to hear, you know, whatever that thing is that they're not aware of. So I I love to hear that. And, uh, one thing you just talked about was, This, this process of for people who are achieving some success, whether that is, you know, leading their own company, whether that's climbing the corporate ranks, uh, can get into these positions where other people are really just their followers, where they don't feel comfortable working with them. You know, the adage that it can be lonely at the top. And, um, you talk about that in the book. And so what are your thoughts about, you know, for people who find themselves in these positions of success, but not necessarily being connected to others, how do they grapple with that?
1: I call this the isolation trap. There's a number of traps on the other side of success. And the isolation trap is this... The premise is, as you become more successful, you often outgrow your old community, even outgrow your old friends, and it's hard to let them go. And, and it's one of the things that will get you to the next level, but it's really hard. It can be tempting to have people around you who admire you, who think like you, who act like you, and, and it's edgy to move away from that. So there's, a, there's something that pulls us back down into being surrounded by people who admire us. I, I love the premise that when you're the most interesting person in the room, you're in the wrong room.
0: And so for people who are in that position at the top, how do they basically open up to the types of relationships that are truly rewarding, that are calling them forward? What's the type of advice that you give to your successful clients to help them get out of that place?
1: It's, it's not so much advice. It's about challenging what's going on right now, letting them see what's happening right now. Uh, one of the things is very hard for us to do is to see our own world. There's a lovely line, um, uh, three mysteries in the universe, birds to the air, fish to water, and humans to themselves. We can't see ourselves. And so one of the most powerful things to do in coaching, whether I'm working with groups of leaders or individuals is to help bring that mirror up so they can see what's going on. And then at some point uh, it, it, that that line when you're the most interesting person in the room you're in the wrong room really seems to resonate with my people and and so there is a way out and it's 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 a way to create communities or find communities where you're inspired by the people in the room instead of everyone being inspired by you that's one of the things i do i I build communities like that i've been building communities like that for
0: 20 years uh, of of fascinating people I, i love to do that yeah, it, it sparks the, the quote that I've heard that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm, and yeah. the idea of if you are in one of those rooms where you are challenged by people or it triggers some sort of insecurity, that you can view it as an opportunity to compare yourself, to stack up your accomplishments with theirs, or to acknowledge that someone's done something that you may not have done yet, right? That you have an opportunity to learn in that situation, Um, some leaders are ready for that. Some leaders are ready to put themselves in a
1: situation where they're no longer being admired by everyone in the room, where they're in a sense of, you know, actually everyone else in this room is extraordinary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you talked about this as a, a trap and that there are a lot of traps on the other side of success. And so did that framing become clear to you as you're writing this book, or is that something that you've kind of Acknowledge earlier in your, your coaching practice.
1: Well, I I as I've coached more and more successful people, I've I, I simply see that more and more. It, these are the these quiet voices in your head that you feel that you can't say to anybody out loud. So the isolation trap has the voice of, I'm not lonely, but I feel very alone. And and th- I, I I the original working title of this book was The Loneliness of Leadership. And it was a polarizing title because I would say, people say, what are you up to? I'm writing a book called The Loneliness of Leadership. And I got one of two reactions only. People would either say, oh, my God, you're so right. That's, that's exactly what I feel. Or they'd say something like, that's interesting. What's that about? Well, if you ask the latter question, it's not a book for you. But on the other side of success, you feel that you're not a lonely person. You've got plenty of friends and colleagues. But it's a real loneliness to being a leader. There are sometimes things you can't say. It's not appropriate to say to your board of directors, to your direct reports, to your, your peers, even to your husband or wife sometimes. And, and there's a real loneliness to it that people at that high level are, are craving a way to be able to share some of that stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think that I hear that so often from entrepreneurs that are starting to find some success, especially, you know, being in my early thirties, I see a lot of entrepreneurs in their twenties who are coming into their first businesses and potentially starting to find some success, wanting to call in different types of conversations about spirituality, scaling a business, and then still having maybe friends in college who are Spending most of their weekend time watching fantasy football and yeah. uh, not doing that, and so you can have that experience of having the relationships that are meaningful to you, but not necessarily the ones that are calling you forward and that really kind of provide you a space to feel understood in this level. Is that something that you see with a lot of your clients? Is kind of the that shift in their friend group being able to kind of keep up with them?
1: It, it, it is. It doesn't mean that you you lose friends and loved ones, but there is a place where so I. I I'm a little nervous talking about this in in public, but but truthfully, one of the reasons I created one of the communities that I lead now called 4PC, uh, it's a group of high-level coaches and leaders. One of the reasons behind creating that about six years ago is I got a $300,000 tax bill, and I didn't have anyone I could talk to about that. I've got friends and people I know who haven't made that kind of money, and who wants to hear someone else complaining about a problem like that? Nevertheless, it was a challenge that I wanted to solve and, I, 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 and I'm and i willing to find ways to have more and more tax bills, higher level tax bills into the future because it's a sign of the impact that I'm making. And I wanted people who would be around me who could say, oh, we had that problem. Here's how we solved it. Let me recommend this resource to you. And so I've created a community where uh, in, in my community, we have Two two phrases that we live by is the place where you can never get too big and you can never get too messy. Mm. You can can actually come in and brag about what you've done. Out in the world, it's not always appropriate. You want to be socially unacceptable, sit down at a dinner party and start telling people how much success you've had. But there is a place where it's not bragging if you've done it. And if you're proud of what you've accomplished, it's really nice to have a safe place to be able to talk about what you've achieved and how proud you are of what you've achieved. But on the flip side, also having a place to, to, to get messy. I, 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 we had a lot of success. And then a couple of years ago, I went through this real big challenge because I changed my whole business model, took us on credit card debt, and I was really challenged for a year. Uh, and and I wanted a safe place where I could have all of that
0: out. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, one of the, the other frames that I've heard put in place with with EO and YPO, where they use Geshalt communication protocol, where when you say you can never be too big, you can never be too miss it and too messy, and one of the frames that they put in place, which for anyone, whether you've found this kind of success or whether you're just trying to create a group where you can talk more honestly about your experience and what you're up to in business, um, is the idea that you are not giving advice and you're only sharing from your experience. So, that when people come into that place, if Rich is sharing that he's gone into debt or he has a $300,000 tax bill, there's not someone else who might be in one of those EO circles who then says, Here's what you should do and you should do that. But they can say, Well, I had a similar experience and here's the guy that I went to. And whatever it was, is that when you speak from your experience as opposed to offering advice in those types of environments, it provides kind of a more even playing field where not one person is establishing themselves as more knowledgeable on a specific issue. But, um, but yeah, I love that you created that space, and you know, I think that anyone really can. So it's a it's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, we have that distinction in my community. We call it no coaching without permission. Mm. And and what I say is, if someone shares something and you have this burning desire to help them, it says something more about you right now. But if in two days' time you still find that you've got something that could be of value to them, reach out to them and check in and say, hey. I, I might have some guidance on this. Are you interested to have a conversation? And then they can let you know from there.
0: I feel like that's something that people should even em- embrace in their romantic partnerships. If they have a partner who's coming to them and is, is going through some sort of issue, whether that's at work, whether that's with some friends. And especially, I would say that the, the masculine and a lot of guys want to solve problems as opposed to just being there as a place to receive that. But if you have a solution to say like, do you mind if I offer a solution before you do it? Because I feel like a lot of times the answer is going to be like, I just kind of want you to listen to this and be here for me. Andrew, have you ever seen the video called
1: It's Not About the Nail? Um, I don't think I have. What is it? Okay, it will transform your romantic relationship. It's a great little video on YouTube. Just type in it's not about the nail. There's a there's a, a man and, and a woman. And she has literally a nail in, his, in her forehead and, and he's trying to solve the problem and she, that's not the problem. And it's very funny. So you'll, I think you'll love
0: it. All right. It's not the nail. I love it. So, so we talked about the isolation trap. What's one of the next traps that people who are finding success, growth at work, stepping into these new places of, of leadership, financial success, what's one of the next traps that people find themselves falling into?
1: I, I call this one the imposter trap. And and we've we've all heard of imposter syndrome. One of the things about very successful people, most people assume that the more successful you have, the more success you have, the the less of a fraud you'll feel. Actually, it's the other way around. You often feel more of a fraud. I've worked with all sorts of people from elite athletes to uh, military operatives, uh, high-level entrepreneurs, CEOs. They many times carry this sense of, How did I get here? If only everyone knew, I feel like a fraud. Uh, One of the ways I I see that is they have this sense of, I'm not really doing very much. I get admired for all this success on the outside, but on the inside, I feel lazy. And and what, what that speaks to for me is actually when you feel lazy at that level of success, it usually means you're working in your zone of genius. You're doing those one or two or three things that no one else on the planet, but you could do. Mm. And then by definition, it doesn't feel very like you're working very hard, but you have the biggest impact. So that sense of laziness, what I say to my clients is that I, I wish for you that you feel more lazy over time. And the fraudulence, paradox as I call it is that i I also wish for you that you continue to feel like a fraud for the rest of your career because it will be a sign that you're putting yourself into places where you have bigger and bigger challenges to face
0: yeah and you know one of the I'd love to hear you speak to you know for people who are in places of leadership I think it's maybe unique for people who are running their own companies but I, it reminds me of, I had this friend who will remain nameless, but he, he had started a company and they raised about $2 million and they were going for about 2 million more. And, um, he comes back to me, he went to the the Turkish baths in New York. And he was really sad because he went to, uh, one of the big VCs here in New York and he had got turned down to close out his round. And so at the end of the, uh, the investment meeting, he asked the the general partner, he's like, so why didn't you invest? who was kind of a friend with him. And he was like, do you want the real answer? My buddy was like, yeah, I do. And the GP says, because when I'm looking at investors, I'm really looking for one thing. And he said, what is it? And he said, it's the aura of inevitability. And he said, the aura of inevitability, like that, just when you meet somebody and you just know they're going to fucking do it. Like this person is going to do it. They have what it takes and it's there. And so it's kind of like this idea that when we, if we feel insecurity or like we're not doing enough that we can't talk about it and we want to project the kind of like um we want to project this aura that we're doing great and that we're completely confident and that we're there. So how do we address that? Well, like, cause we want to, we want people who are below us to feel secure, to feel safe. Like we're assured in kind of our direction. You know, how do you, how do you speak to that?
1: Hmm. Oh, I'm laughing. I-, I call bullshit on it. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes had an aura of, uh, in, what do you call it? Inevitability. Mm-hmm. She created Theranos and she's about to face prison time. Uh, you know, she raised multiple millions of dollars and everyone said, this is an inevitable, a huge success. Uh, what just collapsed in the media? Uh, we work, right? They had an, an aura of inevitability. Um, they were about to go to IPO and, and now it looks like they're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. and so, I don't believe in an aura of inevitability. I believe in being real and and uh, I'm not speaking to what an investor is looking for, but I believe in being real and being authentic and and owning what your truth is and and no matter what. Uh, I think there's such power in that. the 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 power of vulnerability, I think we've had it wrong for so much of uh, at least recent human history where we think that it's, it's weak to be vulnerable. There's so much power in being willing to own your mistakes, to make mistakes, to screw up, to fail, uh i i don't believe in an aura of
0: inevitability i really i appreciate you pushing back there and i had a an experience with my own coach once where when we were raising our round for tribute i was really having some think like we we had raised 1.3 million and we were kind of on the other end of it and then i was starting to think like wow can i really do this and i was having some of these exact feelings of the imposter syndrome do i really know how to do this like i just took a lot of monies a lot of money uh some of my friends were involved in the round And and then when I went to my coach and I was like, how can I go to these people and tell them that we're going to do this thing that I say we're going to do when I still have these questions internally that like, am I the guy to do this? And how do I grapple with those? And she said to me like, look, that's why I'm here because I'm your place to talk about all of those things and that you don't need to go and just let a fire hose of all of your emotions and insecurities out into the public. It's like, as long as you believe in this, in some like capacity and you can go out with integrity and talk about it they go and do that but it's about creating spaces where you have people who can receive all of these parts of yourself which is really natural which is obviously what what you do as a coach but also you know finding friends and and people communities that that can be there to receive all this stuff and to be real
1: and great example you just gave right so many people would be envious wow you raised 1.3 million dollars But on the other side of that, there is when success hurts, right? Oh, my God, what am I going to do? How much responsibility do I have right now? Who will I let down if this doesn't work? Am I really up for this? Can I really achieve all the things that I convinced them I could achieve? But now I'm not even sure if I can achieve it. All the stuff that goes on that makes you very human. And most people don't see that because they're on this side of success looking up. On the other side, there are all sorts of ways to play with that. And, and I, I love that because it means you're playing a
0: big game. Mm. Yeah. Right. It's like when those feelings are there, that little reversal of I'm playing a big game, which is where you want to be is really on your edge. And so when that, when that internal dialogue, before we move on to the next one, I'm curious because it feels like something that is written about so, so often. And, and when people have those feelings of the imposter syndrome of, am I doing this right? Can I really do this? What, what? Do you, where do you usually point them or how do you help them to respond to those in a productive fashion?
1: I ask them to turn around and look behind and I say, 10 years ago, if I'd sat down with you and said, could you imagine what you're doing in 10 years time? Is there any? Would you have pictured where we are today, what you've done in your life, the ups and downs? No, no one has ever said, absolutely. I knew exactly what was going to occur, every single success, every single challenge, where I'd be now, how much money I'd be making, the business I'd be running. But then we look into the future, and we try to create it from where we are now. And what I tell the people I work with is, look, you've done extraordinary things over the last 10 years, sometimes 20, 25 years. So it's inevitable that more extraordinary stuff is coming because it's just who you are. So you don't need to, you didn't need to know how to get here where you are today. You don't need to know what's coming next. And we see all the time in the startup world, we call it pivoting, right? We have no idea what this project looks like now, what it will look like in a year, in two, in five. I've taken a premise from one of my coaches, Dan Sullivan, who's helped me do two things. He's helped me look 25 years into the future. I have a 25-year mission I'm on right now. Mm. I'm curating this community of fascinating leaders. And we're five years in. Now, we have this amazing community already, Andrew, but here's the thing. I've got a five-year-old, and he is a toddler, and he has tantrums and freakouts, and he might burst into my office at any moment right now. (laughs) But four PCs five years in, I don't need to worry. The the value of having a 25-year mission is it takes all the pressure off. And what I do is every 90 days, I meet up with my community, and we check in. 90 days is 1% of a 25 year mission. Hmm. And it takes all the pressure off. What have I achieved in the last 90 days? Is it a lot? That's great. If it's not so much, that's great too, because it's only 1%. So by looking that big into the future, but taking steps at 90 day intervals, it allows me to really breathe and dream big at the same time.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, what you bring up there, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Is as I've gotten more into the coaching arts, is just the power of perspective. And that when people are in these undesired states, when they are overly stressed or anxious, it's oftentimes because they are so in their present moment that they are incapable of, of grasping the totality of something like you just mentioned, which is the all of the great work that they have done and surprises that they have you know showed themselves of where they're what they're capable of and you know what's really important to them 25 years out versus in this very moment. So what are your thoughts about perspective when it comes to coaching?
1: Sam Altman has a lovely phrase. He says, the problem with standing on an exponential curve. Is if you look behind, it seems flat, and if you look ahead, it seems vertical. Mm. And so I remind my clients of that: that great stuff is on its way, and and you can breathe. And it's gonna never, it's n- never gonna look amazing until it becomes amazing. Uh, the two things that people come to me most often ask me most often about Andrew when they come for coaching is I want more clarity and I want more confidence. Mm. And, and what I've seen about clarity. It can sometimes be awesome if you have this great, clear vision of what's coming and how to get there, and every step along the journey. It's rarely the case, though. Look, I come from England, and in London, on a foggy night in winter, you can sometimes see barely more than an arm's distance in front of you. But if you get in your car, even though you can only see a couple of feet ahead of you, you can drive ten miles home, barely seeing anything ahead of you. Yeah, you don't need clarity to travel a long way, and to do extraordinary things. You get clarity when you turn around and look back and go, wow, look how far I've come. And confidence is much the same way. Confidence is a result, not a requirement. Confidence always is the payoff for the challenges, the failures, the struggles, and the successes we have along the way. Except every time we take on a new challenge, we forget that And we think, oh, now I want the confidence first. It's a result, not a requirement.
0: Yeah, totally. And you know, I think Mel Robbins says something about how confidence is uh, a verb, not uh, like a result, like you just talking about, right? Of that, it is the result of constantly putting yourself in that place of of doing that. And so, every every so often, on what's a big idea, we have one of these kind of prompts or calls, and I think it's so powerful. It's like for for anyone who's listening. Yeah, I really would encourage you to consider the prompt that Rich just put forth of look back at the past 10 years. And if you're, if you're going to help them, Rich, of like if someone's going to go back in mind the last 10 years, what are the things that you want them to look for to really show them what they've created or what they've done that they're proud of? What, would, what are the things that you think they should really look for?
1: I, I think you just asked the great, great question. What are you proud of? What are you proud of in the last 10 years? Personal, professional business, love life. What are you proud of? And and just look back. The problem with being visionaries is that by definition, you're focused on looking out into the future. You rarely turn around to acknowledge yourself for what you've achieved. Andrew, to this day, I give my, I achieve something, set a big goal, achieve it. I give myself about 27 seconds to celebrate <laughs> before, right. I, I knew the laugh would come because I knew you'd get this <laughs> before I, before I say to myself, how could I have done it bigger or better? Or what should I be doing next? Yeah. I'm wired that way. So I have to really practice taking time for me, taking time to pray, to praise myself, to acknowledge myself, to celebrate with my community I'm much better, if I'm honest, much better at helping other people do this than myself.
0: We sometimes teach what we most need to learn, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I When I do sessions on gratitude as a speaker, I oftentimes talk about it as the uh, appreciation versus achievement mindset. And the idea that we've been so hardwired that we will be happy, feel good when we achieve the next thing, whether that's a job, whether that's an exit relationship. And that if we have that achievement mindset, that as soon as we get the thing we just go back into achieving and they're just because the mindset's still there. And so my anecdote and what you're framing in this kind of exercise of looking back is like the appreciation of it, of like, why is this significant? What else has happened? But if you don't have that appreciation piece of of looking of looking back, of acknowledging, then, you know, like you just said, it's success is not a destination. It's this long journey. And so if you're planning for that journey and not the destination, uh, is a really powerful thing to do. So I'd love that you offered that up for the audience. And uh, you, you know, T- Tony Robbins
1: said it very well, actually. He
0: said, success
1: without fulfillment is the greatest failure. Hmm. I love that one. There's a lovely book by Clayton Christensen. Now, he's a writer on innovation, but he wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And in that book, he talks about the the, it's the the reason so many entrepreneurs end up their marriages breaking down is it's or their kids no longer speaking to them. It's executives too. It's very easy to measure the ROI of an extra hour spent in the office. An extra hour spent with your spouse, a might not have much of an ROI. B can have a negative ROI because if I say the wrong thing to my wife, things go bad quickly. And so it's very easy and tempting to spend more and more time in the office and less and less time with the family, with the kids, with the wife, the partner. And and so it's something to really pay attention to where, uh, what are you proud of? What really matters? And we tend not to think about that. And it actually goes to the third trap. I'll, I'll talk about the third one right now. The third trap of success is called the emptiness trap and, and, this is the voice in your head that says, I have everything I ever wanted, but I still feel empty on the inside. The, the problem with success, the problem with being driven people is we don't often see why we're driven. For a lot of my life, I was driven by this hidden need to prove myself to my dad. Mm. And I didn't see that. So I'd have more and more success and and it wouldn't mean anything to me because it wasn't about the success. It was about this, this desire to prove myself to my father. My dad passed away f- five years ago, almost to the day. And literally the uh, minutes after he passed, my uncle who was in the room, um, was telling me how proud my dad was of me. And once I got that intellectually, and we had a great relationship. My dad, he was a great dad. I got it intellectually, but somehow the, the little boy inside of me who was, was, had had never stopped trying to prove himself and, and, the the, the the insidious nature of success in America, perhaps more than any other country on the planet, is we have one addiction that we get praised for, that we get acknowledged for, when we know that almost every other addiction is bad. Uh, addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, even to your gadgets. We know there are, there, there's an addiction there. But addiction to work, an addiction to success, you get praised and rewarded for
0: that. Mm. And it's very, very insidious. And so, you know, you, you talked about kind of how we can basically get trapped in this and ultimately just lack fulfillment. We can lack meaning in our lives. And so to make sure that we're not on one of those paths, that we are headed towards fulfillment, what should people, what can people do to understand what's important to them and what they value in such a way that they don't keep building to this ultimate place of emptiness? What's the work that you do with your clients or that you recommend?
1: Nice. Well, let, let me tell you a story first. Have you heard of Alfred
0: Nobel? The Nobel Prize? Yeah.
1: I mean, most people say no, or they say, is he the Nobel guy? <laughs> yeah, he's the, he's the Nobel Peace Prize guy. Now, Alfred lived and died over 100 years ago. And he was actually a chemist by background. And he created something called trinitrotoluene, also known as TNT, also known as dynamite. Mm. He was an explosives guy. He created this explosive. Well, one day he came down to breakfast, opened the local newspaper, and there was an obituary printed there. His brother had died, and the local paper made a mistake. They printed Alfred's obituary instead of his brother's. He opened the paper to see the headline of this obituary read, Dr. Death Dies. You see, his explosives had been used to kill more people in human history at that time than anything else. And he was horrified to realize that was the legacy he was leaving to this world, Uh, a legacy of death and destruction. And he was fortunate. He got to read his own obituary before he passed away. And we know what happened next because most people don't know that story. They know, oh, the Nobel Peace Prize guy he decided to dedicate the rest of his life and his fortune to the cause of peace. His family, in fact, tried to sue him, his estate after he died to make sure that, that money could be given to them and not to the foundation of the Nobel Peace Prize Foundation. Well, they weren't successful. And and so much money and attention and time and energy put into the cause of peace because this man got to see, if I died today, this is what people will say about me. And it's a very, it's a very powerful exercise you can do for yourself. I do with my clients. It's well, write your obituary. And there's two ways to write it, Andrew. You can write it right now in this present moment. If this was it, if you didn't get another minute on the planet, what would people be saying about you? What would you be known for? Mm. And then if you got to actually write it the way you want it to be written, what would it say then? Let's say you live into your 90s or 100s and you die happily in your bed, surrounded by your loved ones. What's the impact you actually want to have on the planet and write that out right now and then do what it takes to make that a reality.
0: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I literally had goosebumps as you were telling the, mm-hmm. the Nobel story. And it, uh, it reminds me of one of the most powerful articles I think I've ever read was the, the David Brooks um, resume versus eulogy virtues which is another distinction there that was super powerful and i actually heard recently as i've gotten more involved in the the realm of men's work that there is a coach who does this exercise and what he does is he actually brings his men to a cemetery and he's created a uh an unmarked grave and so what he has the men do is to actually go to the cemetery and they, they write their own obituary and then they actually get like into the shallow grave and that's where they have to do it to make it this embodied visceral experience. So maybe don't go that far, but if you write it down and you're ready for it uh, a powerful experience, nonetheless. Very powerful. And you know, you, you mentioned something there that just really stuck out to me and it feels so true because it's even in my own relationship, one of the things that my partner asked for more than anything is, is presence, is time with my son. And anytime she calls for that, sometimes it can be challenging in the moment when I want to be with the startup or the podcast or the men's group, whatever it is. But I, I really do appreciate that call. And, and you just really put words to that experience of having such a tangible output. Anytime I'm at work, if I am at work, I'm getting a new guest. I'm getting this much more money into the bank account is that it's so straightforward in terms of the output there. Whereas it's a little more ambiguous, ephemeral to spend time with my son and put him to sleep. Like I did just before we got on this podcast. And I just wanted to put the words to that again. Could you, could you say the words one more time or how you phrase that? Cause I think it's so powerful, especially probably for the guys who are listening. Uh, which bit are you referring to? When you, you talk about itself? how when we're working, you're just so much clearer on the oh, output. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's very easy to it, it predict the ROI on an extra hour spent on your business. But the ROI on an extra hour spent with your kids, with your spouse, with your loved ones, doing what matters to you in the world, that's hard to measure. So it's very, very easy over time to let those things slip. Um, In the book I mentioned earlier, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen, he tells a story when he was at college, he was great at basketball and was on the team. And they had to play on a Sunday because that's one of the days when the games were played. Except he was a Christian. He went to church on a Sunday. And the team said, well, you you know, you can't. If you're going to be on the team, you have to come and play on a Sunday. And he said, well, I... I can't, this is, you know, it's important to me. And then the coaches began to talk to him about this and the players began to beg him about this. And everyone began to talk to him about, dude, you're crazy. Come on. Like, this is the game. This is the team. This is so important. And somehow he knew at a young age, I need to have some lines in the sand that I don't cross no matter what. Hmm. And, and I don't think many of us anymore these days have a list of no matter what's and that's a really powerful concept to have a look at make a list of what are your non-negotiables what are your no matter whats and having kids is a powerful one because the moment they come on this planet you realize that you have a no matter what and and you will do whatever it takes I won't miss a session with a client I'm I'm that it's important to me I'm I'm there for my clients until my kids came along and I realized okay Hey got to call you today sorry I can't make the session my kid's sick I've got to take him to the hospital whatever it is I have some no matter what's but consciously thinking about that and being clear what are your non-negotiables
0: is another powerful exercise Andrew Yeah and you know I really appreciate the point about non-negotiables for sure and when we were talking about how much easier it is to spend time on work because you have that ROI, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the the busyness trap, which is you know what I understand as one of the final traps and one that I have certainly, uh, unfortunately, experienced myself in. And so, tell me a little more about how you articulate uh, the fourth trap.
1: Well, it, we've we've been talking about it really already. It, it, there's there's an overlap in these uh, emptiness trap, the busyness trap, but but it, it's this. We're, we're driven people, which has and it's, it's an asset to us. It's why we're able to get people to sit in a room with us while we can make a pitch, why we're able to have people come and follow us and be on our teams, why we're powerful leaders, why we're powerful communicators. We're, we're uh, well, you, you like me, have a business which is about making a difference to other people's lives, and that can feel great. But it's like there's this tank of energy on our back that's gradually going lower and lower. And, and if we don't pay attention to that, there comes a moment when we're burnt out, when we're exhausted and, and we've got nothing left to give. So uh, it's a bit of a trite phrase these days, but this idea about putting the oxygen mask on first, you have to be able to take your care of yourself first as a leader. You have to walk your talk on that. I remember working in organizations early in my career where the boss would get in at five in the morning and leave at 10 o'clock at night. And that was the culture that we were supposed to live into. And it didn't matter what he would say. You knew that if you don't do those kind of hours, you weren't going to stay very long. There comes a moment in your life as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, where you've got to make these conscious decisions about what are the values that I'm embodying? What are the values that I want to embody for my team, for my company? Where do we stand? What are we about as
0: a company? And so how do you personally integrate that wisdom into your own practice and your own business?
1: Uh, We have a a list of um, uh, heuristics, rules of thumb that are important to us, uh, A, for myself and B, for my business. In my business, one of them is slow down to speed up. Mm. I don't care to be known as a business that answers emails quickly. In fact, if you're not one of our people, we might never respond to your email. Uh, Look, if someone knocks at my front door, I don't open the door to every stranger who who knocks at a front door and say, come and sit down in my living room. And there's something about email that has us feel that we have to respond to everything. No, I have a very conscious choice about this. Slow down to speed up and, and email communication is one of those things that I get choice in who I want to spend time with. I have another value that I call client astonishment and that's really important to myself and to my company. And so, We want to make sure that if you're one of our people, we're always looking for ways to astonish you. And that could be as simple as giving a client a call when they weren't expecting it. Uh, It's certainly not what I get at Christmas when my bank manager sends me a printed card with his name on it, even though I've never met him and he's never met me. That's not client astonishment. That's a waste of money. Um, Client astonishment is where I look at ways to really put my attention on the people I love and I work with.
0: Uh, I love that. And, you know, one of the things that that register, I think I've heard you talk about it this way in the past, is, you know, just the idea that um, when you are focused on work and you talked about, I I love how you phrase that of it's one of the only appropriate addictions in the world. And that I think that we can hide behind that. especially for men that it's so appropriate and that it, it alleviates some of these areas in our lives where we may not be as adept, whether that's socially, whether that's with our family, uh, just actually working on ourselves. And that, you know, that idea of, am I only leaving enough for my own success, where I don't have enough energy, where I have an excuse to not be present in these other areas of my life. And such, such an important one. And, um, you know, um, as I look back on these now, so you've got these four.
1: Well, let, let me let me let me speak to that for one second, yeah, sure. Um, because what you're speaking to is the phrase I like. You can never have enough of what you don't really need, and I usually have to say that twice. You can never have enough of what you don't really need, mm. as men especially. We're craving intimacy with our partners, but it's really freaking challenging. No one taught us how to be intimate, to, to, to be with our partner in the way that they, they want or the way that would be valuable to the relationship. So it's much easier to hide away in work. I, actually, I didn't call it an appropriate addiction. What I called it is the one addiction that we get adm- admiration for. Admiration for, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's, that's actually inappropriate. That's, totally, it's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> um, but but it, you can never have enough of what you don't really need. So, so looking for well, what is it that I'm really craving uh, and, and what is it that I really want in life and then finding ways to, to create that. And, and that's, that's challenging. It is much easier for most of us uh, once we've had success in life and business to put more attention on, on the business side of things and be able to catch that and, and, and ask, what am I doing this for anyway? Oh, well, I, I coached somebody recently who said, I sold my first business a couple of hundred million million dollars and i was about to start building my second one when i realized i only founded the first one because i wasn't happy i'm still not happy Mm. most people never catch that he caught it
0: yeah well, I think that, you know, and I'll do a quick kind of a wrap up of these these four traps, but I think that so much of what I hope people take out of this episode is just an opportunity to catch that internal dialogue for people who are finding some success. And so much of this, even as I've been talking to you, Rich, of like, just giving me a moment to take a breath and evaluate and take a step back out of just this this urge to keep doing. And so these these four traps, as we went through them, is the the isolation trap. Uh, That not lonely, but feeling alone, feeling the imposter. Um, We're feeling admired, but not really feeling like we're up to the task, feeling like we're a fraud. The emptiness trap, having everything, but still feeling empty. And this busyness trap, which we just closed on of getting things done, but not having enough for the things that really matter to us. And so... When we look at those four things, for people who are listening to this, you know, who are getting ready to go back to their lives, their families, to their their place of work, after talking about this, about talking, you know, about the the big idea, what is it that you hope people do with this wisdom? Like, what's the next thing that people can do, um, other than just reading the book? But in terms of what they can ask themselves, or what you you'd encourage them to do to maybe integrate some of this wisdom into their lives a little more deeply?
1: Great question. And I think I want to be uh, a little bit contrarian and a little bit provocative in how I respond. So rather than answering that question directly, what, what interests me is I, I work with some of the most extraordinary and powerful people on the planet, who and they've forgotten how powerful they are. And, and it's what I see in many of the successful people I spend time with at any level of success. And if I was going to leave this with a thought for someone to sit with, it would be this. You are far more powerful than you know. You've forgotten how powerful you are. That, for me, Andrew, is a, a note which I'd rather leave people with to sit with. Well, is he right? Is that true? Where could that be true? And, and, and playing that one out because that, if I was going to sum up the gift that I have, it's that I help powerful people to remember how powerful they are. That's what I do.
0: Mm. It's funny. Like I'm thinking about you back on the beach and whether you could have imagined that any of this would have been happening at, at this place. And um, so, what are the, when you think about how old were you when you were on that beach on sabbatical all those years ago?
1: Uh, that was 15 years ago now, um, 35.
0: And so if you take a moment to think about everything that you have accomplished, all the ways that you have served and grown and created, uh, when you look back at that time span, what is it that you are most proud of? Mm.
1: A, a, a lot of things. T- two things come to mind. One is, I'm I'm proud that I took that risk. I I, I didn't want to go back into the world of education. If I'm honest, I think I was a little bit afraid. I was humiliated by losing my job, mm. and everyone said to me, you know, go back. I was on a fast track to being a head teacher. I I, I I think I would be a very unhappy head teacher at this point if I'd stayed on that track. But um, I'm, so I'm proud that something inside of me said, don't go back. And, and everyone's trying to convince me otherwise, and I chose. I'm always in admiration of people who choose to leave their career. I, I work with a lot of leaders who leave coaching behind. Sorry, leave leave their world behind to become coaches because it's, it's a wonderful career for the next stage of m- many people's lives. And those people who do it voluntarily, I'm always in awe of. I had to get thrown out in order to change my life. Um, so I'm proud of that. I, I'm proud I took a risk... Uh, in 2006, so six months later, I was on a workshop in the Bay Area. I met a woman and I proposed to her 10 days after I met her. And again, something inside of me just said, this is crazy. And this is the right thing to do. And she said, yes. And this is our 12th year. In fact, in, in two days time, we celebrate our 12th wedding anniversary. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the two little boys that I'm raising uh, so it's interesting, isn't it? I just realized that I share all those things. N- none of that was about how much money I've made, uh, how well known I am, how many copies of my books have sold. It, it, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Interesting that I caught that.
0: Wow, man. Well, you know, I I have a, a similar experience with my partner Mickey. I don't know if you know that, but we we got married. Uh, basically, three days after connecting with one another at Burning Man eight years ago. So, nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know that. Well, I'm curious. So, when you look at ten days, was it ten or twelve? What'd you say there? Ten days. And so I knew. I
1: knew after nine days. Yeah. And we were we were in. Uh, it was a, a somewhere in the middle of San Francisco. The, the sun was setting. It looked so romantic. And I said to myself, "This is crazy. Don't do it. You need to wait." So I waited a day, and on the tenth day, I proposed to
0: her. Wow. It's amazing, man. Well, you know, and I want to, I kind of, as we're bringing this towards a close, you one thing you said before we started recording is I was talking about, um, you know, how, how influential your book was on me as I was really diving more into coaching. And, um, and then I talked about my resistance to, to label myself as a coach, you know, when I started doing this, um, several years ago and you talked about how I'll let you speak for yourself. What did you, when I said that you said coaching is, is what, you know, almost like a branding issue.
1: Um, uh, th- to be honest, this day and age, I, 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 like I say, I, I work with a lot of leaders who come into coaching and much of the time, uh, I you see the, the, the barrier to entry for coaching is very, very low. Anyone and their sister can become a coach, uh, tomorrow, uh, by doing online certification for, for zero dollars. So uh, what I say to people is, you know, it, coaching's leadership; it's a very powerful leadership skill. If you've been a leader uh, in all sorts of ways in the past, then you have all the skills you need to be a coach. You may not choose to call yourself a coach. There's different ways to describe what you do. You're an expert in this field. You're a trusted advisor. You're. You're. Uh, sometimes I'll tell people, "Look, coaching is a tool, not a job description." Mm. So I can sit down with high-level leaders in all sorts of fields, and I know that. I can pull out my consulting hat, my trusted advisor hat, my coaching hat. I might ask questions. I might sit in silence. I might challenge them. I might listen. Coaching is a tool rather than a job description. That's the way I'd put it.
0: Yeah. And, and I love that. And, and you know, again, for people who are, whether you identify as a coach or whether you're someone in a leadership role or just someone who wants to be able to to help the people that they care about with these types of powerful frames, Rich is, is truly a master of his craft and uh, I have benefited from it. And I hope that many of those listening have as well. And for people who want to dive in deeper, um, what's most important in your world right now? How can they support? How can they find you on the interwebs and elsewhere?
1: Oh nice. Well, thanks for asking. Uh richlitvin.com, uh will will take you into my world uh and immerse you in all sorts of videos and audios and and uh, I've got a podcast where you can literally hear me coaching people week after week. Uh all I'm doing is coaching, so you can immerse yourself in anything I do uh through RichLitvin.com.
0: And what's the name of the podcast? Uh it's called One Insight. Uh, cool. And why why One Insight?
1: Because when I work with extraordinary top performers, one insight changes everything. Huh. So I'm, that's, I, I don't, it, it's, it's between $100,000 and $250,000 to have me as your coach. Yeah. My clients don't pay me for my time though. They pay me for the insights they have and how they apply them out in the world. And a single insight can change everything. That's fascinating to me. So all I'm doing on this podcast is looking for that one place, that one tiny shift that has a massive impact that excites me. I'm not an accountability coach. I'm looking for those tiny shifts that because you're a high performer, you make that tiny little change of angle and your world will transform. One of the episodes when we were recording it, I was five minutes in and the person I was coaching had this insight and she went still and she went quiet. Because people misunderstand the sound of insight. They think it will be like Archimedes um, (laughs) jumping out of the bath and shouting Eureka at the top of his lungs. Actually insight, an insight moment is usually very quiet. Somebody usually goes, oh, because they see a new possibility they couldn't see a moment earlier. They might have to sit with that for days or weeks or months before the shift happens but that's the change that I'm looking for. So I called the podcast one insight and then five minutes in this woman had this insight and I said, I think we're done. And she went, yep, we're done. And it was a five minute podcast episode.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And it's almost, it's as a, as a coach. And oftentimes when I work people on with, with people on Ted talks, people who are presenting information to other people, I often find that they're so, um, anxious about the desire to deliver so much information and so much value, which is just not the way that people really internalize real insight and information, right? It's like if you think about your favorite TED Talks or anything, it's like Brene Brown spoke about vulnerability, right? And it's that one thing that really is that powerful. And if you allow yourself to focus on it, that, that truly can be the thing that changes everything.
1: Absolutely, I, I teach around distinctions, and 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 life is one way, and then suddenly you see there's two possibilities where there used to be one, and everything changes.
0: Hmm. You know the the way that I've heard that presented is uh, the idea of actualization, which is. Basically using all of your resources and abilities and energy to create the results that you want. Whereas realization is realizing a more fundamental truth that liberates, you know, a, a easier way of accomplishing the same object. And it sounds like, you know, that, that ability to give people at realization is, is really powerful. So, um. So, Rich, I, I've loved our time together. Thank you so much for all the uh, the important work that you're putting into the world and uh, sharing your time with us here And What's the Big Idea. We will certainly send some people on over to the site. And uh, best of luck with the new book. And thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Andrew. It was a pleasure.
0: Signing off.